When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I watched The Patriot. Okay. <laughs> I've been waiting to tell you. So I watched The Patriot on Netflix. And uh, it's, it's a movie from 2000. I loved it when it came out. Mel Gibson at the height of his career. Pre-anti-Semitism. Right after, well, not right after, after Braveheart. He was at his pinnacle. And I remember kind of being like, ugh, Mel Gibson in another war movie. I guess I have to see it. But at the time, I was like, yeah, it was a good movie. And I went back and watched it. And I feel like it was had more of a cultural impact than people realize Mm -hmm. at the time so it's it's wild to watch first off the depiction of war is so romantic like you there's the flag waving cliche of american war movies the climax of the movie is literally mel gibson running into enemy lines with a flag and waving it Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's it's how we win is by waving the flag yeah (laughs) like there's Two armies, they come to the crescent of the hill. The The British are uh, ambushed, but then it gets turned back and they start to break. And so, yeah, Mel Gibson has to go. Literally, he just drops his stuff and waves the flag and we win the war. Yeah, that no way. one also shoots him or stabs him. No one stabs him. And he's, he's, running, he's running. <laughs> they just run away from him. They just don't bother with the flag guy, which maybe makes a little bit of sense. But it's just like, oh, God, wave the flag. Year 2000, by the way, right? This is right before. Uh, big phrase that they come back to a couple times in The Patriot, stay the course. Now, I don't know if you know this, but that is what George Bush ran on in 2004 Mm. after the quagmire in Iraq was stay the course. And I truly wonder if that was put into his speechwriter's mind as this American thing from the Patriot. And I I think that it might have been, quite frankly, because it's just it's, you know, America is amazing and the Brits are all the bad. Uh, Yeah, Mel Gibson. (laughs) It's like a kung fu movie. It's it's not and like a like a old kung fu movie that's ridiculous. Not like one of the Ip Man's that is, you know. There's there's uh, two armies colliding, and uh, Mel Gibson bends over to flip a guy over instead of bayoneting him or doing anything <laughs> that would actually work. Uh, personal combat at the end of it with this with the the music. You know, the two guys find each other on the battlefield. I think that it is sometimes worth going back and watching the movies that you loved as a kid or even that just formed sort of your understanding of the world. Because as I watched that, I was like, oh, I get why America was just down to go to war. (laughs) Because war is awesome. And when you wave the flag, you win. And by the way, the Patriot Act came out a year later after this movie of the Patriot. And I truly think that that also was pulling on a cultural thread from that movie to be well received you know and i read the the 
headline of the Patriot Act, and it's to help protect against terrorism, and then it's most famous for spying on American citizens at large with no search warrants. It's just very interesting how these, I think that this this movie laid a bit, not all of, obviously, but the groundwork for the overreaches of the American government through the years 2000 to 2000 and whatever, three mm. or four during the Iraq war and George Bush's reelection in 2004. Yeah, I mean, the thing, because I actually, weirdly enough, watched it a couple months ago. The thing that stands out to me as I think about the movie is how they do touch on the sacrifices of war in the mm-hmm. sense that he literally loses, spoilers, two mm-hmm. of his son's mm-hmm. lives over the course of this movie. And yet at the end, it's a happy ending. Mm-hmm. And they and it's like happy music and he gets with his ex-wife's sister. There's no trauma. Because his yeah. wife had passed away. And they don't really touch on the fact that this was horrific and totally not worth it on a personal level. And Mm -hmm. even if it was, even if he's like, I'm glad I made the sacrifices for my country, his life is not better off. And yet at the end, it's a sunset and music. And it's like, it all works out for old Mel Gibson. It's like, this dude lost two of his sons Mm -hmm. horrifically in front of his face. Yes. And it's just, it's all good. We'll never touch on that. And so when 9-11 was happening, for instance, and I was in high school, uh, or sorry, I was in middle school, but then we're in the Iraq war and I'm in high school. It didn't occur to me, at least as a teenager, how messed up people would be when they came back from the war. Yes. And so I knew people from high school who we turned 18 and would volunteer for the army because we're right in the thick of a war. And when you hear that, you go, oh, wow, I hope they don't die. Mm-hmm. Right. Because if they can go to war and survive and come back, then it's all good. And the movie just I was like, oh, yeah, of course I thought that. So I was watching these <laughs> movies where Mel Gibson just watches his sons get murdered in front of his face. And at the end, just goes, well, it's all good here. He was, to- he was despondent for a scene. And, and it's no, like he's sad scene. when he watches it. Yeah. But he is not horrifically traumatized throughout. Well, he, he almost pulls out of the war when Heath Ledger dies. Mm-hmm. And then his friend comes up, we need you. I can't. My war's over. And he goes, stay the course. And he goes, because his son said, stay the course. And then George Bush said, stay the course. Yeah. And, he, and he gets back out there and he waves the flag and he says goodbye to his French friend. And, you know, it, it touches on like the beginnings of problems. Like his little daughter is traumatized and doesn't and hates him and doesn't want him to leave. And uh, yeah, then it totally, then it's over. It totally and, resolves. And, you know, she he's forgives got, him. He's got and... his very attractive wife's sister who's been there all along and been this like wonderful mother figure to his kids. Yeah. And it's uh, that's the part I was like, wow, really, really to me, it just glazes over the cost of war. Yes. And while oddly acknowledging it, it's like, yes, your son's going to die. And yes, your daughter's going to be upset with you. But then you'll win. Yeah. <laughs> but not for long and it'll be totally worth it. Yeah. 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 That was the, I was blown away by its, because, because what was I watching? Something that talks about, um, a bit disparaging be disparagingly about these Chinese war films that are like the wolf war films where it's, you know, one Chinese Rambo goes in. And of course it's based on American Rambo. Uh, and we got the same thing. We have these totally propagandistic films mm-hmm. about life generally, you know, not just war, but we've, we've done this with love a million times. It's like, and then they fought and then they had a, a misunderstanding and then they got married. And that was the end of the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that's, there was no problems after that. And then, then there were kids and there's a second thing, but there was one more problem and that was it. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was striking to watch. Cause I didn't, when I was little walk away going, Oh, that was a piece of ridiculous high fantasy. 
And when mm-hmm. I watched it now, I was like, this is absurd. I can't believe that there were adults watching this and capable of suspending disbelief. Well, I mean, we have, <laughs> to be fair, we have the Avengers. Yes, but yes, totally, totally. I mean, there's a guy who is a Norse god. It, it, it makes no pretense at uh, any sort of historical realism. Mm-hmm. You know, we're like, Elon Musk is like Tony Stark. It's like, no, he's not. <laughs> he cannot fly around in a man suit that just goes wherever he wanted with, I don't even know how Tony steers that thing, just with thoughts, apparently, and verbal communications that know exactly what he's going to do. But so, yeah, I guess there's there's some parallels, but that to me was just, it was egregious. Um, I told you the other scene that was funny, which is uh, they're in the, they're in church. Heath Ledger comes in to conscript some soldiers and he says, will anyone come? And nobody wants to come. And then the woman in the front row who becomes his love interest stands up and says, will none of you fight for the things that you've said? I heard you talking about freedom. And you just the other day you were complaining. And will you not stand up and fight for the things that you so passionately have declared that you care about? And then all the men begrudgingly stand up and go and fight. And many of them die. And she's like, and doesn't doesn't even go. <laughs> and it's like, okay, yes, I know women didn't go to war. But after reading the myth of male power, it was just striking to me how I didn't notice that in the first mm-hmm. read-through. Like, how hypocritical of a statement it is. Will you not fight and die for these things? And then she sat back down. Now, granted, in the story, she does eventually get... I was going to say, she, <laughs> she, does, does, she does die. And it's true. And it's true that war, historically, has super high costs. Well, it's for the men fighting and for the entire population where it's being fought. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like British women uh, suffered the loss of their mates, but didn't have the same personal stake in it. But, you know, if there was fighting around your home and you were. Yeah, wherever woman, the war's like, happening, everybody is. Fighting. Exactly. Everybody suffers where it's happening. But um, it's just it was just interesting for me to go. Wow, I went my whole childhood without noticing that. That discrepancy and wanting to be the guy that stood up like yeah, desperately say, wanting to be the guy that like stood up and like tipped his hat to his son and then went and caught you know a spare bullet to the leg that wouldn't have killed him but then died of gangrene like that was who i was i was so eager to, to i wish that i had that quality and now i watched it and I go man i've just been getting they've been preparing to trade my life <laughs> my whole life like sure. hollywood has conspired they're just ready to to pull my number and send me to go fight in some more that we don't need to be in. Yeah. Uh, and for people who think you're being hyperbolic, we do have a draft. So when you say pull your life, you mean literally they can just force you to go fight. Yes. Yes. And, and that's not to say that there's not causes that could be worthy. Right. And perhaps the American revolution was one of them, but to not get uh, one for Iraq to follow. So, so closely after with the same rhetoric that was in that movie. And then two for it to show you know, there were no infections. There were no, like, we saw some legs get blown off, but deaths were swift, dramatic, and Heath, Heath Ledger's was a close-up with, the, you know, Mel Gibson screaming to the sky. It was, it's just such a inaccurate, partial perspective of the horror yeah. of war. Well, it's just a movie. It's not meant to be a documentary. Yes, but what it does is it informed my view, along with Braveheart and We Were Soldiers, which Mel Gibson was in both of those and every other war film. Sure. Uh, yeah, it just informed my understanding. And then we went to war in Iraq and it was, it just happened. You know, I don't think that could have happened in an era with bleaker films and depictions of war. I, I actually think that there would have been much more pushback against it. 
Or let's put it this way. I'll give you two things. One, depictions of the Middle East that treated countries as separate and different, <laughs> having different cultures and different people. Because that was another thing that America lacked at the time, was any sort of cultural understanding that Saudi Arabia and Iraq were just not the same. Oh, yeah. No, sorry. The reason I just frowned and looked away when you said that was because we've been going to war, as America, we've been going to war forever. So, And there's, I think there's always been this propaganda, you know, we want you to... Yeah, but I think every country has. Every country is aggressively propagandizing. Sure. America is one of the few insanely expansionist countries. Now, granted, that's... Well, all the ones with strong militaries are. So, like, England isn't anymore, but mm -hmm. when they had a strong military, they were. Sure. China so, and is, Russia is, and they have strong propaganda in Russia, and they have strong propaganda in China. And I yes. bet when Britain was an empire, they had strong propaganda. I just totally. think it's like, these things, I don't know what comes first, but, like, having a strong military... Being a global superpower, having a lot of propaganda, mm -hmm. and being expansionist—I mm -hmm. don't think I don't know that there's been they're peas in a pod. I don't yeah. know there's been mm -hmm. someone who was an extreme global power with the strongest military who had no propaganda and never tried to expand, mm -hmm. and they just sat quietly with the strongest military and did nothing with it. That would be yeah, that'd be kind of a waste to to build up all that unusual military. in history. Yeah, that'd be strange. Um, but yeah, so it was just it's interesting to watch how uh, how different it was. The other thing that I don't know that it accurately portrays, but I know that it's to a degree different, was the depiction of uh, courtship between Heath Ledger and the girl. So he mm -hmm. basically walks into a courthouse. She stands up, says a few words. He sees her. Then he asks her father permission to write her during the mm -hmm. war. They fall in love without having touched <laughs> you know what i mean it's it's just very interesting i don't know that that was completely accurate but what it made me realize is that not that that was wrong or right but that the necessities of life really framed what courtship needed to be and and the lack of birth control that's the other thing and and that's i, I mean i think I, even more than the necessities of life what, i they, think if so those they, women they put him in a in a burlap sack and i googled it this it, it often wasn't done like that but they would sometimes in the time period stitch you know, your pants shut or your something shut so that you couldn't, you could be in the same area as a, as a woman and not get her pregnant. Right. Uh, it was the only way you would be allowed to be left alone with someone's <laughs> daughter. And I don't know that it was a widespread practice except in a handful of areas, but there was, there was similar social norms and sorts of things to protect against that. And it's interesting that we still have, and we've talked about, you know, it does marriage make sense, but we still have a lot of the rituals and rights and ideas around courtship in a time that we're seeing, you know, we've got dating apps and contraception and plan B, but it's, yeah, interesting to be like, oh, wow, it's similar to the education system, which arose because, you know, take summers off so you can go tilt the field. And like today, kids get summers off because it's hot and you can go to the pool. You know, it's just that we have these uh, holdovers sure. of what made practical sense that now are uh, rituals that may or may not have value in the in current technological necessity or survival necessity. So that was just a few of my thoughts when watching The Patriot. Did you have any others that you recalled? I know you watched it a longer time ago. No, no I mean, the main thing the main thing I saw was just that it's a happy ending, which is remarkable for a mm -hmm. guy that just lost two of his sons. Yes, yeah. And he ducks the sword perfectly. Gets him with the American, and he stabs him with the American flag, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I was, I was watching this one. I don't. No, he actually, I think, it, no, he gets him with the flag, then a bayonet. That's what it is. Um, yeah, if I was him, I'll be just. I, I imagine I'd be more despondent about the cost that that war had had on me. 
Yeah, it's it's a pretty he's, he's pretty uh, untraumatized at the end, from what we can see. Maybe that's just how it was. I mean, the other thing is death was just more accepted in the past. We can like, talk like there was just a, you just knew that sometimes having a baby was going to kill your wife, yeah, or your kid, or both. And we we uh, I think we are hidden from death more, which maybe does make death more traumatic for us when it does happen. I don't know. I think that. So I'm not certain, and I and I'd have to get some stats to see what like alcoholism rates or whatever were, and how those might have fluctuated. But he, his character, Mel Gibson, was traumatized. He would have been traumatized from his experience in the previous war, and they even touch on it because he was. Mm-hmm. They chased down these, I think, uh, these Indians and some Frenchmen and butchered them after they they'd killed Americans. Uh, which reminds me, this is a medium segue. I, I wanted to get Soft White Underbelly. Maybe, Justin, you can reach out to them. Um, Soft White Underbelly does interviews with a lot of people on Skid Row. Mm-hmm. And can you tell people what Skid Row is? Skid Row is an area in L.A. that has got a lot of homeless encampments and a lot of drug use and a lot of prostitution and a lot of, you know, whatever. In in Vancouver, it's Hastings Street. There's, there's these areas of cities that are become... Sometimes because there's public services nearby, sometimes because it's a legal area for people to encamp, become the the center of the homeless world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just interesting in, in watching that as people tell their stories. They're often unaware, but when they describe their childhoods, they'll say something like, one guy goes, I had a really happy childhood. Um, and then at 13, I had to leave because my, my dad was getting a little bit too violent with my mom. So it's <laughs> just like, you left at 13 after a really happy childhood where your dad kind of crossed the line at, at that age with your mom. And then that guy grows up and he is a pimp, essentially. He, he runs brothels and mistreats mm-hmm. women. Um, and the generational trauma that you'll hear, and it's, it's, it's such a crazy echo. There's one dude, did I mention it? I think I mentioned it, but uh, who he doesn't say so at the beginning of the interview and you find it over the course of the interview he's a harvard grad who is crack addicted mm. like he got crack addicted at i think his first college and then and then messed up his life but then was able to get out enough to go to harvard um because he's a smart guy went to harvard did some crack screwed screwed him some of the time but when he was in class he got a's he said at harvard and through the whole time has been struggling with crack and the connection that in his mind crack has with prostitution and so for him, what he would do is uh, do crack, get a prostitute, and have her do oral sex on him, even though he wasn't erect. And that could go on for a long time. And that was like this this hook for him. And you're you're sitting there watching that, be like, oh, that's such a I've never heard that before. Like, why? Mm-hmm. And he just mentions 25 minutes in, you know, have you ever been abused? He goes, I don't, not really. Like, I guess like when I was four, like these 12 year old girls did kind of you know do some stuff to me. And you go. <laughs> oh, like a four-year-old boy that was touched and get, didn't get erect by a woman, and wonder if you're like playing that thing out sure. over and over again. So it's in almost every interview, the people are unaware of how the trauma in their life so uncannily is echoing uh, throughout. Yeah, well, I've seen it in our podcast comments. Some people don't believe in the link between your childhood and who you are as an adult. I didn't. Some people just just think that the, the traumas of your life do not stay with you. And so, and the reason is because they think about them like I did with my shit. And I would go, I'm aware of it. I don't think of it every day. Like you'd have to remind me and it's not bothering me. And that's because they think that the person they are is the thoughts that they're aware of mm-hmm. <laughs> and not the unconscious, literally unconscious, you're not aware of them drives that only come up 
in really, really safe environments like therapy or when psychedelics right. are. So you, so you might have a self-sabotaging behavior. You might do things like find significant others that are bad for your life or <laughs> sabotage yourself at work or whatever it might be and just think that's part of you mm-hmm. and not realize that that is a hangover of your trauma because mm-hmm. it doesn't, while you're doing your gambling addiction or dating your shitty significant thinking, other, yeah. you're not thinking of what happened to you when you were eight. Mm-hmm. It's just subconsciously yeah. driving you to the exact self-destructive or self-sabotaging behavior. But but some people disagree with that. I, I think it's almost obvious when you dig into it, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't have known it 10 years ago. Well, the thing is, what it is is that is dangerous because it's not purely scientific in this way. It's like, we're kind of starting with the result of like, oh, you're crack addicted. And then we look back and of course you're going to find something if that's how you do science. If you look at a result and then try to find a cause, you can come up with any number of stories. What is truly hard to do with trauma is to say, you had this trauma, you were raped, molested, whatever. How is it going to manifest itself? Because the truth is the final outcome can be a number of different ways. You mm-hmm. can get people who are so stuck on the trauma, but it's it has a more positive uh, expression in their oh, life. Yeah. They become criminal prosecution and they're obsessed with it. And it's like, you know what? That's not so bad. <laughs> like, No, what? I, sorry. What I'm saying is that every, almost every person that I know, which is obviously anecdotal, but it's, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of dozens of people who I've had conversations with. The thing that they are trying to figure out or that's holding them back that they see sometimes or they don't see sometimes, it often links to oh, yeah. being shot, uh, something in their childhood. So it's like, when they seem really smart but can't get business to work, mm-hmm. can't get the promotion, can't start the business they keep talking about, or yeah. when they are a really great person who keeps picking shitty significant others, whatever like whatever thing is recurring, if mm-hmm. it's something that happens more than once, like it's not just one area that they fail in one time, but they repeatedly have this failure, often, if you get to know them and you talk to them, you can see how it is something from their childhood and once they can figure out that it's something from their childhood, that's that seems to be almost the only way that they break the cycle. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And so when you become aware of it through therapy or psychedelics or whatever, that's the time that you can uh, suddenly improve it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you had monetary limiting beliefs from your childhood. It's not even from trauma. It was just a subconscious limiting belief you didn't know existed. Well, that's maybe, was, a, maybe you're, you're, you're saying that there's a better way to express this. Like instead of saying trauma, let's just say like you learn a lot when you're a kid and then you forget where you learned it and you forget that it was drawn in very black and, and white. And you forget <laughs> that it's optional to believe it. Exactly. That's the bigger thing. So you don't even, you don't even know that you're holding a belief. You just think that's how the world works. Exactly. And then when you realize it's a belief, you, I mean, legitimately start earning 10 times more money once you recognize that you had a limiting belief from your childhood. That one wasn't, and they're not all that easy. That was, I think this is perhaps the difference between a, a trauma experience and a belief that you picked up in childhood. Yeah, so, I agree. So what I had was a belief that said, and it was partially childhood from just hearing, you know, money's not going to make you happy. And then as I grew up, I read, if you make more than $70,000 a year, happiness tapers off. And then I moved to New York and I saw a bunch of iBankers that I considered very wealthy and not people whose emotional life I aspired to have. And so, But I, just, I, but I also think it's from your child. I think if you had had a, a, a dad or a grandpa yeah. or someone you admired who was a young, incredibly oh, sure. self-made multimillionaire, that no study would convince you that money was no, going to hurt no, you. No, I was, I was very convinced that from my family as well that like money certainly wasn't worth really making your number one priority. Like, And that's... Not a bad thing for, for, I think. And if I have kids, yes, I would. But then it got interpreted to be, 
don't make more than if this you much. Make, <laughs> if you make more than this amount, yeah, you will something bad. Exactly. But the but the, where the where there wasn't trauma, where there could have been, is no one when I was young. I was like, oh, you see that rich guy? He's a bad person. Because mm -hmm. if that had happened, I think I would have had much more difficulty overcoming sure. it. Sure. When I recognized the belief, I just went, oh. I'll let go of that one. And that one changed immediately. There's been other beliefs in my life where I go, you know, oh, maybe I shouldn't, for instance, spend so much time on dating. Like, you know, maybe, maybe because this is kind of why Charisma on Command exists is I was, I cared so much about this. Uh, but the, the time in return out is like, okay, these relationships, which are in uh, retrospect valuable, but I was surrounded by my best friends. Like the relationships that as I look back that were the most valuable have been my friends, which came easier, had more positive emotions and which I spent less effort in creating, cultivating, maintaining. Sure. That they were just lucky enough to happen. And so I've tried to get my brain to go, oh, folk, like that's the thing. Like call your buddy. Like yeah, remember, yeah. call that guy. When you have that the urge to open with. up a dating app. Yes. Open up your phone instead and, and call, call there, a friend. Where there must be trauma is my brain is so slow to learn that. And yeah. it's not like I'm destroying my friendships, but I'm certainly not the, you know, you know me, I don't respond to texts or make phone calls. I pick up the phone sometimes. But, yeah. <laughs> um, and that's where I go, okay, something happened in my life where that got locked in. And uh, it's not as simple as becoming aware of it for me to let go of it. Sure. Uh, so I guess that's where the psychedelics come in. <laughs> I have a bunch of random stuff. I Go don't know it. if you want to. So, yeah, we're going to be all over the place today because it's been a bit of time since you were here. So we uh, there's a restaurant. There's a disaster relief fund for COVID. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, trillions of dollars and they're in different bills. And I really don't know a ton about it. But this is one small thing that it really grinded my gears. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I know someone who I'm, I will speak in generalities because I don't necessarily blame this person for this. Uh, there's, a, there's a section of the disaster relief fund, which is restaurant relief. And I think even beyond that, there's broad sections of the COVID relief that are specifically earmarked for the people who need it the most. And the way the people who need it the most are defined, at least in this section, is uh, different ethnicity than white, women, I don't know if LGBTQ is included. I'm not sure, but I know that it's women. It's it's this. Vets are included. So if mm. you are a white male, you do have that opportunity. But uh, it is really messed up. It is like it is to me pure racism to say that you are eligible for something because of the color of your skin without any further follow up. So this particular individual owns several restaurants mm. and definitely suffered during COVID. Now that's like lost a lot of money. Didn't sell the second house, didn't sell the third BMW, you know, did, you know, struggled, like was stressed out, no doubt. Mm -hmm. uh, didn't miss a meal, didn't. Yeah, struggled <laughs> yeah. is a funny word. Mentally struggled. Mentally was very stressed, yeah. no doubt. Not and enough I, to have As to I would have been, but didn't sell, sell didn't sell the second house, didn't sell the third BMW that hasn't been turned on because it's been in the garage for so long. And like literally a mechanic needs to come because the, that BMW has been turned on in the second home that he hasn't visited that much because right. it was COVID. But he's defined as someone who needs it the most he fits this category and to be clear he lost a lot of money so he's mm -hmm. getting millions of dollars and the way that this works is you have to apply and does he have to pay it back is it a loan so it's it's supposed here's the difference it goes towards like operating expenses only but here's the deal he lost the money that he lost that's gone mm -hmm. like he's he's and he's also gotten a lot of you know as i think is appropriate like 
the, the landlords of all his restaurants were like, don't pay us. Because if he had to pay, they just have vacant places, yeah. right? So there was, there was all of that stuff that already happened. That money's out the door. This coming year, he gets the money that he lost that he would have made last year, which is millions. And he has to put that towards operating expenses. Except if he's running a profitable business, which, you know, we imagine once traffic picks up, he was and he would be, uh, his operating expenses are covered by the revenues right. that he generates. So essentially what's happening is now he's making in 2021 going forward in 2022, all of the revenue that he gets is now profit because the government, meaning you and I and everyone else, are paying for his expenses. Well, that's you just said something that I think people have really lost sight of, which is when the government gives people money... <laughs> We are giving people money. Even if they print new money, what they're doing is just taking a part of your money and devaluing it. Mm -hmm. So every time, because it's like, oh yeah, well, let's bail, let's bail everyone out. Why not? It's like, okay, just so you know, like you're the one bailing them out mm -hmm. unless you're under 18 and then you haven't paid taxes But yet. And so like, I'm not, again, this is where I find myself with so much government stuff. The idea that, hey, it could be worth it for the community to come together to pay a tax, sure. to bring a business that, okay, but that's not what's happening here. One of the things I think is funny is that in the US, there are certain, first of all, I don't even think this is necessarily the best way to look at things, but there are certain races that on average actually make more than even white people, Indian Americans, uh, males, Asian American males. Mm -hmm. They are also- Homosexual males make more than- Homosexual males, <laughs> but they are also included. So so for who needs this most, it's it's just a funny math. It's neither done on the individual level, nor is it done on the group level. Exactly. It's just not white men. Exactly. Like it's it's like, not actually even targeting, even if you said, listen, we're going to do, we're going to treat races <laughs> like monoliths. Yeah. This doesn't even target the races that- or necessarily it earn includes the, the highest earning demographic broken down by race and gender. Yeah. And then the other thing I think is interesting is it doesn't look at employees. Mm -hmm. So if you are an owner of a business, but your business majority has, let's say, upper middle class white people working at it. And there's another business that's owned by an upper middle class white person, but employs a ton of lower class or impoverished minorities that could really benefit from getting a bailout this isn't incorporated in the math, which I just think is fascinating because it's also not in the idea that taxes are, we're going to take money from everybody and we're going to put it back into the community to help the community. Yeah. They're not running any sort of math to figure out how, like who would most benefit or what business would most well, benefit the community if we yes. reinvested in it. And so there's a couple of things here. So one, what I didn't really make clear, if, you, if I don't know if the audience got it, I know you did, was that the operating expenses, the way that this works is this is going to get turned primarily into profit for the owner, who, as I described, is doing pretty well. Like, it was a tough year for him relative to his success, which he has worked hard for. The business's losses could outstrip even their own expected earnings, and mm -hmm. they're not going to then give those raises to and the employees even necessarily. Do, even if they did, and even if they're kind of so hard, they doubled the salary of the employees, the primary beneficiary is still the, the multimillionaire owner with yeah. several. Now, Steel Manit, there's a possibility, I actually don't think in this particular individual's case, that if they didn't get the money that one of the restaurants would have had to have shut down. But I, that's not the case in this individual. And there was no attempt to check. There was no, like, the only thing they want to check on is what race are you? Are you a vet or are you a woman? Like, that's the only check that they're running. Not, not and, and will you spend it on operating expenses? But not, are you going to shut down a restaurant if we don't do this? Like, uh, will jobs actually be impacted? Yeah, how many people do we help? with this by doing this how many employees do you have 
how many people are going to keep jobs because of this. There's a lot of things you could do mm-hmm. that I think a good nonprofit would do. Yeah. And the government is acting like a, a nonprofit charity that yeah. donates money to people, but they're not doing the diligence yeah. that you would hope that they were doing. So anyway, so I don't, we, it was interesting. We had our conversation with Vosh and we never defined the term racist because the way that he uses it is very different. The way that I understand the term racist is when you make race a defining issue in a situation in which it should not be. Yeah. So for instance, if you are hiring uh, like someone to hand out vaccines in the Congo and you exclusively hire dark-skinned black people, I don't think that that's necessarily racist because you're going, look, like the way that they'll respond to you might be different. So there are, there are some places in which race may make sense to incorporate. I would argue that... Uh, this is not one of them, which makes this a racist, in my definition, policy. Uh, I think it's also sexist for the same reasons, because there are men who yeah. I'm sure deserve this who are not vets. No, uh, and obviously people are, the words are made up and people are attempting to redefine different words. And there are people who would just disagree with you on the, the word racism and they don't think that's the definition anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one other thing. I, I'm hopeful that this is a phase in time but that ultimately we do center back to martin luther king's dream yeah. where people are judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin so there's there's go ahead i just remembered one thing i'm just gonna say the word it's incentives but go ahead well no that's it i mean i'm basically like we the the thought process is things weren't fair in the past so we're going to tilt the scales now and we're going to make policies based on race to try to equalize outcomes because we're not worried about equal opportunities for words specifically about outcomes. And my only hope is if that's the policy in 2021, it's for a period of time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then at some point we just circle back to Martin Luther King's dream yeah. where we do not judge anyone based on the color of their skin. We don't disenfranchise them because of it. We don't uh, benefit them because of it. We just truly think of skin color like hair color and eye color. And we judge people by the content of their character. And I think that people who think that they're well-intentioned are making policies based on race. And I just hope that that's temporary. And Uh, I I I want to center back to MLK's (laughs) dream and uh, just forget it and just treat it like skin color or like hair color, eye color, all these other things. And which I know you feel, which I'll just elaborate because if you're sitting here not understanding, you haven't heard us speak before. I hope that we treat Pete. I hope that we help the individuals that need help, which may disproportionately include black people, for instance. You know what I mean? Like they might make make, make up a much larger portion of people who receive benefits from the government slash sure, community. It'll, it'll be because but of it, their situation. It will situation. not be because they are black. It will be because they are in need and have demonstrated character that says they will respond well. No, I'd like a government to, where they said, oh, we're going to get, we're doing a billion dollars and we're going to help the public education in the schools that score the lowest for public education. And someone asks, well, how many people that look like this, would that help? And the person gets confused and goes, well, I don't know how many brunettes it helps. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many green-eyed people it helps. And I don't know how many white people it helps. Mm -hmm. But I know it helps the people who live in the areas with the worst public education. Yeah, Like that's that's where I think the North Star should be. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping this is a temporary, okay, we got it wrong in the past, so we're going to skew further than uh, the ideal in the present so that we can center on that where... It's just not how people are judged. Yeah. The other problem with this policy, and I think this is true of any large government thing because they don't have the ability to be as uh, 
I guess, specific as they need to be is the incentive problem. So, for instance, there's a restaurant nearby us called Sugarfish. It's a sushi place. I imagine it's minority-owned. Might not be. Could be a couple of white guys. But it's, for the sake of argument, let's say it's Asian-owned. A lot. I mean, uh, almost every employee is a minority. Yeah. Let's... Uh, they would not be eligible for this because they had the best year ever mm-hmm. in 2020. And I've asked them, they said, we we could not have done as much business in the confines of their store as we did takeout because they had a very good takeout experience. They had these boxes that are probably terrible for the environment, but <laughs> like really made everybody want to do it. And they transitioned super fast and they had exclusive deal with Postmates so that they were slotted high. Like they businessed really well mm-hmm. during the pandemic. They are not eligible. This other person who I, I'm not saying that uh, they were completely asleep at the wheel, but like didn't really transition or, sure. or make a strong effort to take out. And I know a little bit about it and uh, it doesn't work with that. Like there was a, there was a lot of, I can't mm-hmm. in this the particular era, not, not saying that they sh- could have, but that there was not a strong effort to do so. Sure. And the way that this works is it props up that less, uh, the business with less ingenuity. <laughs> yeah. Now, granted, hopefully there's never a pandemic. You don't have to ha- demonstrate that level of ingenuity in the future. But it's it's just a bummer. It's like I wish that <laughs> I wish that you'd move to takeout. People still needed to eat. Yeah. No, we've uh, talked about this before with the financial industry and the airline industry. When you bail out, when you bail people out, you, you get s- predictable behavior, yeah. which is that they won't change their behavior for the future black swan event because they know that a bailout will come. And so airlines after uh, maybe 20 years ago, when they got into huge trouble and they almost all went bankrupt and then they got bailed out, did not start storing tons of cash in preparation for future problems. Because what they learned was as long as we get in enough trouble, the government will bail us out. And so they do share buybacks and give big bonuses and basically say, let's get rid of the cash because if we have the cash, we won't get the bailout and we'll just lose out to our competitors. So we might as well just do what everyone's doing, which is not prepare for something bad to happen. Yeah. And I, the bit, and we've said it before, but I feel like it just occurs to me now, so I won't bite my tongue. Uh, the same thing is occurring with the cancel student debt, which is essentially it's a bailout of the decision of the people, myself included, who I've now paid my loans back, but who made foolish decisions, but also it's, it, people forget, it's a bailout of the university system, mm-hmm. which has been subsidized and bailed out for decades for not providing quality education uh, that is worthwhile to the people who go through it. They can't even afford to pay them back the exorbitant sums that they charge. I think if you want to solve the student cost of education crisis, let's call it, instead of the student debt crisis, I think what you do is you, you tell the universities, hey, just so you know, in two years, we're going to change the law so that student loans can be bankrupted, basically. And they're not federally subsidized. And they're, you know. We're going to, just so, so heads up, only give student loans to people you think will pay you back because four if degrees, anybody. Four degrees that you think. Because if anybody money, wants yeah. to, they can go through the cost of bankruptcy, hurt their own credit. It's obviously not costless for them, but they can do that if they decide that it's worth it to free themselves of the debt that they have That's to. another thing is that, like, why can't we just. Bank like Donald Trump has used bankruptcy. You know mm-hmm. what I mean. He he is a person who lives with a gold plated toilet who has gone bankrupt or had three of his oh, businesses or student- five of his businesses go bankrupt. It's it is a it is a strategy to say, look, I've bitten off more than I could chew. I can't pay back these particular loans. Let's restructure, cut a deal, whatever, and then then I can go with some liens or whatever, live my life and start 
somewhat afresh. Also, and student loans do not allow for that. You cannot bankrupt on student loans, which is such an insane government protection of these lending agencies and of these universities. Yeah, I want to clarify two things that are related to student loans. One, you can't go bankrupt and they follow your parents. So if you go bank, if you don't pay them, it goes to your parents. That's very strange. Most well, debt it, is it not goes, like that. I think that. it goes to the guarantor, which is often the parents, yeah. Most debt is not like that. And two, bankruptcy doesn't necessarily mean that the school will get nothing. It means that they have to negotiate with you mm-hmm. or they get nothing, but you are forced to liquidate all your assets to pay them back, which you is to have, say- you don't have any. And so they need to negotiate. They exactly. Need to cut which a deal. is to say, if you owe a hundred grand, we'll you might end up We'll take a dime on every dollar. We'll take 15 cents on every dollar. Yes. And guess what? Now you just got a reasonably priced- education (laughs) yeah exactly so it's not a complete get out of jail free card for the students but also you will end up paying less but it doesn't completely screw the schools it's how every other loan works so the problem with student loans i think is the fact that they are treated so differently from other loans Mm -hmm. but i've said it before if you forgive every student loan but you don't change the education system you'll just have a student loan crisis in five years or 10 years because nothing is changing about the system so everyone who's 27 now won't have student loans and everyone who's 17 now will just have student loans in 10 years exactly like the 27 year olds today so it's a it's a really broken solution and i think i can't tell if it's because it's lazy thinking or because voting age people are the ones it would help and if the fact that it doesn't fix things for a 15 year old doesn't matter it's generational i uh, so um we again we've mentioned this you know we have a lot of time between podcasts these days (laughs) and uh I do think it's generational. My grandpa's generation, if I was watching a long time ago, a lot of the debates uh, for presidential debates do that, the video that I did. Mm-hmm. And you hear like, I'm going to balance the budget. I'm yeah. going to, you know, they all like my grandpa, uh, depression guy, you know, quote unquote. He greatest. wasn't depressed. He lived through the depression. <laughs> he might have been. Who knows, man? Oh, just to say. He had a tough life. Um, the depression guy is because he lived through the depression. He wanted to balance the budget. He died with a tremendous amount of savings in a very modest oh, home. He thought it was important that the government anchor its spending to the tax revenue it made. And I don't think that, that that there's like a there's at least a generation, maybe more, of voting age that has no interest in paying back what they, no, they owe the opposite. or balancing a Why budget. Why are you only printing that many trillions of dollars? Why can't you print twice as much? Well, and it's it's so cliched, but it's I guess there's a generation of of that had the helicopter mom that's like step in and deal with this because if I scream and complain loud enough, I will not have to Oh, that's an interesting Deal parallel. With this. Like, uh, you're saying these people are just used to the power that be intervening. Yes, that that someone can step in and solve this problem for them. I think I'm not saying everybody, but I'm saying what I do feel very confident saying there is a greater proportion of that mentality in the in the younger parts of the current voting generation than there was 40 years ago. Sure, uh, and that had to do with the again who what they were surrounded with when they grew up. You know, <laughs> if you don't think that this stuff matters, it definitely does. Um, yeah, my grand that was not my grandpa's experience of growing up. Like asking someone to step in was wasting time and going to get you further hurt. Yeah, dude, that wasn't my experience growing up. When you get beat up, you got two options. You got to figure out how to make that person not beat you up or you got to learn to fight. <laughs> that was that was my experience growing up. It wasn't that you could just call your dad to have him come in and yell at the bully for you. Well, I think our experience, which I'm not saying was, it is important to say that Every experience is not necessarily better, but it does have predictable outcomes. So like the world in which you and I predominantly grew up, which is there are rules. This is how you get the good grades. If you can outcompete people in the fixed set of rules, whether it's throw the ball faster down the center of the plate, uh, 
to write the paper the way the teacher wants it, you can excel and you will be rewarded for it. So it was our thing was like learn the rules of the game and then try to win the game yourself. Mm-hmm. And don't ask your mom or dad to step in because that's horrifyingly yeah. embarrassing and, and, a, and a breach of honor. It's also not all upside. It involves getting beat up. So mm-hmm. like I understand why helicopter parents exist. I'm not saying it's universally better. And I'm also... I didn't tell my parents a lot of times that I got beat up. So it's yeah. not like they were just yeah. <laughs> sitting I, around doing nothing. I, I was, uh, I didn't want to tell them, you know what I mean? It, well, I didn't want them to step in. Sure. It was worse. I remember one time I got beat up. My mom tried to help and it was, it was even worse than getting beat up. It and was embarrassing. And there's uh that's, that's an imperfect view of the world. Cause sometimes like we're like, learn the rules of the game and the rules of the schoolyard game are like stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sometimes you want an adult to come in and be like, yeah, so that's what I'm trying to say. Dumb, I'm, try- I'm trying not this is to be a dumb game. I'm and trying so, not to be the person who says our generation was perfect. It's like, well, no, there's downsides. No, to- what our generation I think lacks a little bit. And, and luckily you and I, I think have gone the other way compared to some of our peers is our generation just plays the game handed to them. They just go, this is the game mm-hmm. and I'm going to play it. Yeah. No, not a lot. It was a uh, entrepreneurship some are, was some not particularly <laughs> some popular. Games are, some games are stupid and shouldn't be played. And sometimes there should be a higher power that intervenes and goes, this is messed up. There's just, in my opinion, way too much of that <laughs> with, with the younger, like, oh, this game isn't fair. This well, the other is- thing is, I don't know if they're, I don't know if there's too much of it or they're just the loudest. You know, when, when people are talking about forgiving all student loans, I actually don't know if you've polled 22 year olds, would they all say that was a good idea? Or most of them go, no, this isn't the perfect solution. You should go to the universities and lower costs no and this and that. Listen, I'm, I'm a pretty uh, thoughtful, analytical guy. And when I had $100,000 of student loans and was 25 years old and I, and I didn't involve my parents with my sporting events or my school. You just think the incentives are so strong that it- How you, do you say, you no, have to don't convince hand yourself. me 100,000? Because the, the thing that is true is like, look, I was duped. And I, I believe this. You, the entire society, conspired to dupe me yeah. into spending way too much money on an education that was not worth it. Right. Uh, and that's true. And I was a minor when you guys did that. And I, and I went into college at 17 years old. And so there is a case that can be made like, you guys tricked me. I was under duress. I shouldn't have signed this. How did you sign your student loans at 17? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dude, I don't even remember. Like it was because you were was, you turned eighteen in college, middle of or middle of first semester in college. Yeah, it's year, it's yeah. very like in my experience, uh, and it was it was help from my family, but it was also this facilitation of entering into this debt cycle. Um, and I'm glad that the way for myself that I went out of the debts because it took me a while to break out of this because I spent 
four, no, then five years. What was my solution at the end of four years of debt when I couldn't get a job? Get more debt. Get more debt. <laughs> that was what I did. You went to get, frankly, get a master's degree. I went to get a master's degree that was the least useful and added more money. It added just as much money to my master's degree in one year as I'd accumulated in debt prior to that almost. Yeah. And it was the least useful from an educational standpoint for, compared to four years that already were definitely not worth it. Uh, and that was my solution. That was the only game that I knew how to play was to mm. continue to apply to university. Mm-hmm. And I, quite frankly, what was my plan after that? PhD. I was just going to, and then try to get the university to hire me. Thank God that's not the route that I meant, uh, that I went. But I, I do have sympathy for the person who was 17 and signed over years of labor. Sure. Labor for it. What I would say to them is, look, you're right. You got screwed. But if you keep playing the game, like if you keep trying to, Get someone else to do this. You will miss the valuable lessons that come from digging your way out of this hole and you will never fall back to that hole again. Like I fell into a hole for four years and because I had the opportunity, I dug it deeper with a fifth year Yeah, because yeah. I, because the lesson was never landed on me. It wasn't until I started making those horrific payments and, and not just started, continued and that, like every payment hit me a little bit differently. Sure. It's also not to say the government can't have a policy to help the country. I'm being dramatic, by the way. Horrific payments. Like I was, I was a happy life. My life is charmed. Yeah, you right? were eating rice was, and weight gainer powder and getting stomach aches because you weren't buying food, but you were good sleeping on the couch, Airbnb yeah. being your bedroom, which is still a charmed life. <laughs> no, I was I know, with I'm my friends. Saying, I was, I'm just saying it's yeah. not like you were. Uh, you were. You were cutting costs you were trying to get down to the yeah literally down to the calories we were starting a business while you tutored english because we were living in brazil while you slept on the couch because you could airbnb your room while you ate brazilian weight gainer powder as your source of food because it was the cheapest per calorie way that you could get food and it gave you stomach problems for 12 months yeah (laughs) i just don't i don't want people to think that you like had student loans while you had your parents buying you a nice apartment. Parents, and, like, so what, what did happen? Just because my life, I, I really, that was probably one of the happiest times of my no, life I'm, well. I'm not saying it was bad. I'm just saying My you brother did. was in Brazil with us and my parents sent him with a credit card. And he knew, and we, we'd been raised to like not blow it, but I knew that it had like, I needed a meal. Like I, I was like, yeah, you I can't do this. To death. No, no, no. Not if I needed, if I like, dude, I need solid food that I'd be like, Henry, can you run it? And I didn't abuse it. I used it um, once every like for a, a meal, I got once every 10 days. I don't yeah. know. I mean, you also had like horrific diarrhea for 12 <laughs> months because the Wakener powder was some sort of random bullshit. Yeah. No, I was, I was, I was sick when I was in Brazil, but it was, I was also healthy for it a was lot su- of the time. It was super fun. I'm not saying, I'm not saying you're a martyr by any means. I just want, I don't want to uh, make it seem like they didn't impact your life at yeah. all. Well, anyway, enough about me. It's not, it, it's not important. Just well, sorry. What I was going to say though, is I don't think that the U.S. government having a policy to help the country and some of that money going to some people with student loans or going to people of a certain age or something like that, that's not necessarily all bad. I'm just saying the solution I hear most commonly talked about, which is wipe away student loans and then don't give any help to anyone who went and became an apprentice somewhere because they were smart enough to avoid student loans. This just doesn't seem fair or make sense. And it also doesn't solve the problem for everyone that's going to college next year. That's mm-hmm. all I'm saying. It's just a bad policy. Yep. 
So we, I've, I, we've, that's something that I care about. Ben cares about. If you guys don't want us to talk about student loans again, let us know. Justin will read the comments. And, I have another thing about relay. incentives. Sure. Biden's changing the taxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who want to eat the rich will be very excited about this. I'm going to read it so I don't I get the details right. So they're moving capital gains from 20% to 40%. Corporate I think, taxes. I like that. Corporate taxes from 21% to 28%. These are good, well-intentioned ideas that are great in theory. Yeah. The problem is this puts a lot of U.S. states in the highest corporate tax bracket relative to other developed countries Mm -hmm. when you do state and federal. And I think it may backfire similar to the fact that everybody's leaving California, basically. Mm -hmm. I don't know the answer. And I understand that this comes from a place of let's make this fair, let's tax the people who have the most. But I do wonder if what's going to happen is that all the corporations will just leave so that the ones that remain get taxed a lot, but the overall tax revenue this has been happening goes for, down. This is nothing new that, that Apple has an offshore thing in Ireland and whenever there's a Republican in office, they cut a deal to bring the money back in at 5% tax. Yeah, like, I'm just curious what the policy would be if you, what we were saying was how do we get the most tax revenue to the U.S.? I, you know what? I agree with you that that is not necessarily being well i think it's tough to map second and third order effects i really it's really tough to know how well this one seems kind of obvious to me i mean california literally mentioned raising taxes and elon moved tesla out to Texas <laughs> immediately right like yeah we, they also had like a, a representative say fuck elon musk and he you know tweeted back noted like they they were becoming uh hostile to him in their sure in their rhetoric. I'm just saying, actually, I think it's well, I do think it's well-intentioned. I actually don't think it's meant to be bad. I think it's a politician trying to do what they think is right. I'm just curious if it's the right call, if what you're actually trying to do is help the U.S. government get the most tax revenue so that they have the most money with which to help the American people. We'll see. I mean, I guess there, there's, I'm sure there's data on how changes, because these, these numbers have gone up and down for a long time. Mm-hmm how that's impacted it. I think what's different now is the, the globalized marketplace. I was just going to say, the I think ease the ease of capital flowing to different countries the and ease places. Of staying in touch with loved ones. I, yeah. I, I genuinely think the idea of moving to Singapore or Puerto Rico. Logan Paul's just like, I'll go to Puerto Rico this year it's, and I'll FaceTime my mom mm-hmm, and I'll bring exactly. my brother and I'll, and I'll. It's not a lonely experience. You yeah. bring some of your friends, you can stay in touch with everybody. I think that tech has made it easier than ever to flee tax rates. Yeah. In a way that, it's 1950. Are you really going to do that? You're going to move to Puerto Rico and you're going to write a letter? Well, you know what's crazy? What it has done is it's um, the, the the planes that we have now. We used to have the Concorde, which was faster than the planes that we have now. Now, not, and that's because it was economically unfeasible. That when, I think it flew from New York to London in just a few hours. Mm-hmm. But what it has done is it's it's I guess one of the things that I've seen as I've traveled is that when you live next to someone. You see them all the time. Mm-hmm. You see them every day. When you live 20 minutes from someone, you rarely see them. And that's almost the same as if they live an hour away. And then if they live across the nation, that's basically like living an hour and a half away, at least for me in my life. Because it's like I have to make a L.A. to Connecticut is the same as L.A. to or as Connecticut to the Dominican Republic. I have a good friend that lives in Connecticut. Now, mm-hmm. New York, sometimes life brings me to Philly. Yeah. My family's there. So life brings me there. But, yeah, I have a friend who's I mean, he might as well live in the opposite end of the world as far as how often we see each other. We see each other when a wedding both brings us to mm-hmm. 
New York or something. Yeah. So I think like, yeah, living in Puerto Rico, it's just not that uh, inconvenient in terms of staying in touch. Now, maybe the quality That's of the life is, I'm trying to make. Maybe the, the quality Puerto of life Rico, is lower that, or better if, or whatever. But yeah, that if that if I lived in Washington D.C., this is just me personally. My family lived in Philadelphia. I might as well live in Puerto Rico. That that's well, I don't know about that. That's me. That's me. And I guess that's not everybody. Yeah, most I, people, I think it, <laughs> most people DC drive. is a little bit closer. <laughs> not for me, dude. I don't go anywhere. But, but no, I think that's. I think fleeing for taxes. Also, with the internet, if you were, I mean, imagine if you moved your business from the U.S. to a foreign country that had logistical issues before the internet because you needed to have factories and factory workers and all that stuff. But especially with online businesses, it doesn't disrupt operations to move a business mm-hmm. abroad. You might not even as the owner have to move abroad. So yeah, I'm, uh, I think it's, it's, a great, it's great in theory. I respect that he's doing it because a lot of people say that they're going to yeah. raise taxes on the rich. I was worried that he wouldn't raise corporate tax, or sorry, uh, capital gains. Yeah. I, was, I was worried he's going he's gonna to raise it on salaries. And then you go, yeah, you get into office and then you realize that all your money comes from the rich mm-hmm. and so you basically pander to your donors. So I respect the the integrity of it and the intention of it. But as somebody who mostly I just want the U.S. to like do well so I can continue living here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wonder if this is going to backfire. It seems like it's set up well for a backfire. Maybe. We'll see. I, I guess the answer is, I guess we'll see. Mm-hmm. I, I truly mean that. I don't know how it will impact revenues and well, the other decisions thing is, that people make. So for instance, I think you'll see less people sell investments in the next three years yeah, we know that. than ever before. Yeah. <laughs> and then they're hoping a Republican comes in and just lowers the capital gains tax again. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, these are just things I think about is how do you actually do what we all want, which is it's not necessarily to punish the people that stay in America. It's just mm-hmm. to get the most money to help the most people. Mm-hmm. So yes. I think this might, might end up doing the opposite. Mm-hmm. What else do I got? I listened to one video that uh, just interesting from Steven Crowder. Because he was talking about how his business model has changed based on how the YouTube algorithm has uh, treated his channel, and they've they've changed. Okay. So uh, they blocked him on search, and we talked about that. How you can like type in "change my mind" and you get some eight thousand view video. Come on, dude! You type in Steven Crowder. It's it really is egregious. Um, and he said so. That was the first thing they had to do, and then browse won't promote them, and now his business. Uh, they do live because the live section of the algorithm still has not been apparently meddled with. Well, to, they'll, they'll fix that. They'll fix that. YouTube right? will fix that. It's just interesting. That's a glitch, that, well, Steven. I, I think that's a glitch. They're going to get you. The reason that I know about this is because he's now in a lawsuit or is engaging in a lawsuit mm. with YouTube. Are you familiar with this? Yeah, you told me about it. Basically, he's saying that they unfairly have applied their terms of service to him, which I fully agree with. And I hope that he wins the lawsuit. And I hope that YouTube has to make a decision to either be a platform or a publisher. And if they are a platform that they are forced to enforce the rules of uh, evenly. And, and so you might not be particularly familiar with Steven Crowder's case. He's got a handful of things that he got strikes for. The first one was after election day, when the policy was, you're not allowed to say that this was a stolen election. Uh, I don't know why <laughs> YouTube came out and said that. That was very activist of them. He had his team go to, I think, a couple dozen addresses and show that the address had voted 
but that there was no address there. There was no home mm-hmm. there or anything like that. And that can be true. And it can also be true that Joe Biden won the election fairly, right? Like, yeah, my sense is that there was election fraud in the sense that there there's always, always election fraud, fraud in the yeah. sense that we have 300 plus million people mm-hmm. and we're definitely not going to get mm-hmm. everything right. Like mm-hmm. we're going to just lose mail. That's going to happen. We're going to have write-ins that just get lost. Yeah. Uh, I think, I, I feel like you can say that Biden won fairly and also there was a vote from a house that didn't exist. It's like, okay, I can hold these two things in my head as both true. Yeah. It doesn't even prove anything to me. Yeah. And so that's like one, that's, I, I don't, I'm not aware, but if YouTube doesn't disagree with any of the things that he said, the fact that he got a strike for that is absurd. Um, and then the other one was related to Fauci and the CDC guidelines, which they went over, went first, it was wear a mask and don't wear a mask and now it's okay. And they were talking about how the CDC is all over the place and they were quoting the CDC and they got a strike for that. Mm. And it's, from what I understand, it's evident that what YouTube doesn't like is your implication and your tone. <laughs> you know yeah, what I yeah. mean? Like, you, yes, that might be true, but you're, uh-uh, you're not allowed to because we don't like you're, – you're discrediting Dr. Fauci and we all need to trust in Dr. Fauci because we have to. Yeah. Um, so I just – I really hope that uh, – I hope that he wins the case and I hope that YouTube stops being so activist in their application of their, their policies. But we'll see how that goes. I don't know anything more about it. I have not a single thought to add. What else? I watched a lady. I guess she's she's younger. She's a younger woman. She's in her 20s. Uh, speak to Jordan Peterson, North Korean defector. Mm. I don't have too much on it. It was uh, it was just interesting. A couple of things she said. Uh, real slavery is occurring today, and we you hear that, but she just was like, there's 300,000 North Koreans that are working as slaves in China. Yeah. Dude, uh, we ignore so much about China. There's concentration camps in China, too. <laughs> All the atrocities people point to, like the Holocaust, slavery it's like these things are actually happening right now mm-hmm. we don't do anything to stop and like it. and what, what i mean i guess i don't know if it's uh they are whipping them or not but they are buying and selling people like that is that is definitely occurring and part of the reason she said and this isn't necessarily entirely it but china has a deficit of 30 million women around marriage age or something like that because of the one child policy mm. and so 300,000 and most of them women come in it's like you just buy a wife uh, and she has to be your wife and she doesn't speak the language and you can completely control her life and she's got no recourse. She can't go anywhere, do anything. She's in China, you know, back back to North Korea or through Siberia. There's just nothing mm. for her. Um, Sounds rough. Yeah. Um, it's it's interesting. I mean, her her life already in her 20s is just ridiculous. She She managed to, she said she has a complicated relationship with her husband who, you know, technically, like raped her and was her husband and then helped her purchase her other family members to get out of of that and so she then went back to south korea studied there oh she was in china she was she was sold as a slave yeah oh yeah got it she was sold as a slave and then um went to study in south korea she was able to escape and then able to get to america from south korea went to colombia colombia and said that she, it was actually weird to be, hear her be so despondent about the f- level of freedom in Colombia. She's like, to, to realize that f- there's nowhere that's even free <laughs> because of what she says that I do think is interesting. And and I I would not have even been tempted to go this anywhere near this far. I'd be like, how am I going to compare uh, the policing of speech in Columbia University to North Korea? Well, yeah, I mean, it's just absurd. Can't. But she does, well, dude. She, she, can. Flag- she absolutely does. Like, this is not me misinterpreting. Sure. You can watch the interview. Uh, she says that 
the way that people in North Korea self-censor is very much like the way that the self-censorship that is occurring at Columbia University in terms of what you can say. Mm. And now I, I will go out and say that clearly the penalties are not the same, right. you know, the penalty. But um, I think she makes the point, I don't know if it's her or Jordan, that makes the point that it's it's difficult because it starts primarily as uh, economic and community sanctions. Like you can't say that you'll be you're not part of this community if you say that or mm-hmm. you will suffer some sort of financial trouble. Like you're not going to jail. There's no legal apparatus. Um, but what that does is it creates a really loud consensus that then can transform the, and legal, make laws. Yeah. the legal system. And that's of course difficult because that is occurring all the time. We all around us have rules about what people can't say. You know, you can't come into my house or go outside and call anyone a fucking ass piece of shit douchebag right like you technically can do that but you will be kicked out of the group and people will not do business with you so those there's always these things that people are not allowed to say you just give justin so much to bleep yeah (laughs) bleep every single word justin well the question that i had in watching that is like how do you deal with with social prohibitions of speech because clearly they exist and i'm not i don't want to abdicate my ability to say you know what you can say that in my face in my home like how do you deal with those Somebody comes up to you and it's just says something that you find horrible. Uh, I don't know how to deal with it because the problem that she's pointing out is this can this can turn totalitarian and you yeah. can throw out ideas that you wouldn't want to. But at the same time, like every community does this. It's so interesting that in the land of the free, which is how we pride ourselves, that a North <laughs> Korean person would come in and say that they think that we don't have a, a free society. But also that's just one state. Well, that was, Maybe if she'd gone that to- was, That was one university. I don't think she said, I don't know that it was, we have a free society, but that the, um, there, you had to believe these things, these, these sacrosanct sure. ideas. She should have gone to a university in the South. I, I think universities are gone. You think so? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure. Huh. I think that was the first uh institution i'd be curious if anyone wants to write in who's gone to college in the last so i know that one of the years or still is in college let us know if you felt like there was a lot of social pressure to censor yourself yeah and for some of you it might not have been you might have been right along with it um oh yeah i'm just curious i just want to hear from people so what i heard from brett weinstein is that the university of chicago which has a history of like milton freeman they're like really free market and to the degree that a lot of the books that i read about it i'm not I haven't heard both sides of it, but the ones that I have are extremely critical because they exported Chicago School of Economics to all these Latin American countries. And according to the books that I read, just destroyed these countries. Mm. (laughs) So they're like super hands off free market capitalism, like let the U.S. come in and we're going to tell you how to do things and our corporations will buy up all your stuff and it'll be great for everybody. Um, Even that School of Economics is now uh, woke, basically, Mm. and has all these, these woke rules. And that's like, the bastion of neoliberal thought, which is quite opposed, I think, to that. So, just one anecdote. What else do I have? I'm going to save everything else for next week. Okay. Um, I could save it. Nothing I have. Nothing else I have is uh, time sensitive or based on a current event. Yeah, we got a lot so. of questions that we haven't gotten to as well. Oh, Ivan and you didn't do questions? Did some, but... People want to know what Ivan thinks, dude. <laughs> Not for Patreon. We did a YouTube. We had a lot of Patreons. Week, so. Oh, got it. Patrons. All right. The first question is: I'm currently starting up a YouTube channel with my best friend. Sound familiar? 
and we have a plan for content, style, growth, recordings, everything, except I found I stink at editing. I'm trying different things, but I'm curious whether I should outsource this. Because of my day job, I can afford to hire a pro editor, but am I jumping the gun a bit? Hmm. I think you should do a handful yourself, and that will give you an idea of what can be done. Just a, just an idea, what is difficult. It'll let you know what good work is, and you'll have to make decisions that you don't realize are decisions. Uh, if you have never done the editing, you're, you'll be a worse hirer, I think. And so I would just spend a handful of weeks, like, the questions that you'll have to answer are like, should I use stills or should I use B-roll footage of things? That I didn't realize that was a question. Like, how long do I want each thing to do? If it's, you know, do I want the, do I want my frame to move over a scene or just zoom in or out? Like, do I want to do those crazy wipe transitions? Uh, doing that just even once, twice, a handful of times, I think is worthwhile. And then what you can do is uh, go to Upwork or anything else, put out a thing, hire a handful of the people just for, a, just say, hey, the first job is going to be a trial. You can pay them. Uh, and say, what I want you to do is just take 30 seconds of my content or 45 seconds of my content, a minute max, and edit it in your style. This is what I did. Uh, because what you want to do is find someone who just gets who just gets it. Um, and then, then you can tweak the things that you might want to change. But rather than hiring someone and trying to you know, convince that individual to, to do it in your way, I have found that it's best to see a bunch of different things and then go with the one that just fits you. Yeah, I definitely agree with the second point. I think it depends on the job. If you're working 60, 70 hours a week, mm -hmm. making a lot of money, and what your scarcest resource is is time, and you still have to spend time scripting and creating the content, I would just go straight to step two. And the, I think the most important thing is don't hire one editor, have a trial where they do the exact job, which is what you said, edit mm -hmm. 45 seconds, and you'll just get a sense, instead of knowing it because you tried to edit it, you'll just get to look at 10. So if you just look at one, you might go, oh, this is pretty good. But if you look at 10, 45 second things, I think you and your business partner will get a sense for which one you like. Yeah. I go, oh, this is good. I would have thought this was good. But now that I compared it to nine others, I realize this is good. So yeah, if you work a lot and you find time is a much scarcer resource than money, I would personally just go straight to that. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting. And I don't know who, it, I think that's a good point. We're... My experience is I did some editing. Your experience is that you didn't. And, I, and I'm trying to remember back to our first hiring of Andre, how important it was that I had done some. I mean, he got, he got a lot of it right away. So I, I think that's fair. Well, yeah. I mean, we started without editing, right? We started with just pausing the video yeah, and letting it, just it me, stay me, paused. And then we, started, then we did me editing and I would just get clips and I would run four second stills mm -hmm. as I spoke with like a Zoom or like a... <laughs> um, and then we got Andre. And then Andre even evolved since yeah, he's done it a lot yeah uh but cool i also imagine youtube is so prevalent now probably have a sense of best practices from the best people that's also possible you know what i mean like you were you were doing videos where you would talk and then pause yeah and a still image would sit and it would do well because breakdowns were a novel concept whereas if you tried to do that yourself now the people watching it would just go oh no this isn't like there's a, there is a charisma on command now and it does B-roll and you would just mm -hmm. know that B-roll was an option. So I do wonder if now, seven years after we started, this person might just have seen YouTube iterate so many times that mm -hmm. it's not as additive to sure. go through the process. Cool. Next is recently I've been coming over to a friend's house who is one year younger than me to use his gym equipment. 
Whenever we'd talk about non-school work-related things, he would not uh, stop talking about how he wants to get huge muscles and be the biggest guy in school to attract all the girls. Nice. I tried to get him to be not obsessed over this, but he is very persistent with his mindset. What's worse is that he has not had any previous relationships or even friendships with a girl in his life and refuses to come with me whenever I provide oh, him with an opportunity no. to interact with one of my female friends. I really want to help him out. What can I do to change his mind? Oh, I have great news, which is once this guy puts on all the muscle, he will realize that it didn't do anything and will be much more receptive, I think, to other alternatives. Yeah. This was me. Put on 40 pounds mm-hmm. in a year. Yeah. That's so much because <laughs> I was really convinced it was going to make a huge difference. And it was honestly kind of helpful. And then I realized that I still most wasn't. Help, no, the most helpful thing, two things happened that year. You also went to college. Yeah, this, and, well, I assume this person fraternity. is not 28. I have a friend one year younger than me. You think it's a 28-year-old describing a 27-year-old? No, 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 no. Well, well, no, I'm saying you, that was, that was your freshman year of college. It wasn't your sophomore year of college. Like if, It was. It was between freshman and sophomore year. Oh, really? I started college at 180. And I walked in my sophomore year at 220. Got it. Got it. So just tell him to keep lifting. <laughs> what, well, I mean, one, he's not, I mean, it's not wrong. Uh, depending on his age, it's going to help to be muscular mm-hmm. and shredded. And the second thing is life will bear out. If he is wrong, instead of you trying to convince him that he's wrong, the world will show him he's wrong. And I think at that point you can yeah. find him in a moment where he's confused and go, Hey, I know you thought muscle was the answer. I think there's other things you can do. And then you can do whatever you think would be helpful to him. Take him out with your friends. Show him some YouTube videos. Yeah. I mean, so we, and just to be clear, because we've talked in the past, we've been like all the stuff that we thought wasn't, was worth what, like the muscles of this is just so much less. And it, that, that is stands. The most important thing is not muscles, not even close. Two things are true. My sophomore year when I was 220, there were guys who were made more successful with women that didn't have muscle because they were more charismatic. Mm-hmm. And also me, yeah. with the same level of charisma that I had at 18, was benefited actually <laughs> by being a gym rat for a year and putting yeah. on 40 pounds of muscle. So yes. both those things can be true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what should you say to him? I mean, I would just, easy to talk about him. getting girls. He says, <laughs> I would just, I don't know. First off, I would release yourself from the need to change his mind mm-hmm. and instead just ask, be like, are you sure that you want to wait six months before getting all the girls? Because... Russell Brand was shagger of the year three years running, and he could, he's not even yoga fit. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, I could, I could just, I could run down the list of people, and I'm sure there's people in your school. Like, I'm sure there's people you know. I'm sure yeah. you look at people, you go, I don't understand. Yes. Uh, you could ask him, be the only way. And you could say, look, I, I don't know how close you guys are, if you're comfortable with this, but what I would say is if, if the topic were broached, is it sounds like, and this is okay, that you're, just very nervous and this is a way to put off potentially getting rejected six months which is it's a fine strategy if you could just say hey, i'm not even going to try until until i'm yoked or whatever but and that's fine you know maybe you'll, good luck i don't know what to say um yeah i think you can't force people to change also unsolicited advice almost never goes well just how's it going for you you can it's just go on the, the better, record yeah, yeah you can just be like hey i don't think this is gonna work if it does power to you yeah when it doesn't work I'd love to talk to you about other things that are probably more effective mm-hmm. <laughs> just let, just plant that seed. That's another you know, option. Depends I've, how close you guys are. I have a question because I feel like I've done the going on the record thing. That's always been my go-to It's just like, I just want to raise my hand as having said, this mm-hmm. is not going to work. Nobody ever comes back and, <laughs> and asks. So in terms of practicality, like I do that for my own, well, I don't, for my own peace of mind. I mean, I don't, 
one of the, uh, the best thing that has ever gotten people to follow my advice is living it. Yeah. So maybe the guy giving the advice about how to be really, really good with women isn't necessarily living a life that the other guy That's okay. aspires he, he to. Yes. And, and he doesn't need to. What he's saying no, is, no, what, I've had a girlfriend, you know, like. Well, all I'm saying is you're right. Planting the seed has not worked. What has worked is living it. Yeah. People only came to me for advice when they were going, how are you doing this? Yeah. You know, like, how are you so successful at blank? That's that true. Was the only, so like fitness advice, no one asked me until I was in good shape. Advice with women, no one asked me until I was ha having results that they admired. Business advice, no one asked me until I had a business that they wish they had. Mm -hmm. So like in terms of practicality, going on the record doesn't work what works. Having the results yourself is the most effective thing that I've ever seen in terms of having people want your advice. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And they have to be, I think, and this is t totally fine. They don't, if, in order for people to ask you advice, you can't just have good results in that area. You need to have phenomenal results mm -hmm. in that area. Like, if you are more fit than your friend by uh, some margin and you're at... 5%. Yeah, yeah. Or 15%. You know what I mean? You just might not care. Um, and if you are friendly with girls but aren't the stud that he desires to be, even if that's not your goal, he's he's just not likely to ask for advice. Like if mm -hmm. your goal is I have a girlfriend and I like her and I wish want the same for him, may not be his goal and he may not care to get your advice on that. Mm -hmm. But Yeah. I, what I would just wish, if he if he if he watches this, what I would say is like, assuming that women are a top priority, uh, do both, man. <laughs> you only need an hour a day at max in the gym, uh, and if you find that you're that that you still have to put it off, then you're what you're going to find is they will not just flock to you because of the muscles. Like the Connor Murphy myth is a myth. Uh, Connor Murphy is the guy was he's now doing some different stuff, <laughs> but he was super muscular. Uh, my brother was at a party with him. I've been around. Nobody flocks to him until the camera comes out. Ever. 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 Doesn't matter how yoked you are. What the women were flocking to was the camera. And they liked his muscles. But he's also extremely confident when the camera comes out. Yes. He's not scared to ask questions that uh, most people wouldn't ask or yes. to do pranks that most people wouldn't have the confidence to do. So it's like, yeah, he's got the muscles. He has a cameraman and he's very confident. It's not just sitting there looking like him that necessarily now i mean someone mm -hmm. you'll you'll get someone if you look like cotton murphy like that's definitely true you still have to you still have to converse at some point yeah you, you have, have to have a conversation <laughs> yeah so to do that now to get that out of the way to, to deal with the butterflies and the nervousness and the is uh you do them in parallel and i'd and i'd highly recommend it because you you'll at the very least need that piece uh nobody's gonna come banging down your door just because of muscles i'm sorry to say cool Last one is, I'd really like to know your stance on couples living together as you both have experience with it. Specifically, what were the reasons and when did you guys know that it was a good idea? <laughs> was it more practical, <laughs> financial, testing each other's compatibility, or was it emotional? As in showing more commitment, she asked first. And having gone through it, can you share which couple uh, types would you recommend slash not recommend it to? I'd like your help in seeing if there's a more philosophical or principle-based approach to deciding if it's a good idea to move in with a girlfriend that you already like and trust. We laugh when you say, how did you know it was a good idea? Because it was not a good idea. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on this? I mean, it's tough. In hindsight, we're both dating people that we shouldn't have been dating, and we're both extremely obsessed with them. So mm -hmm. we shouldn't, not only should we not have lived with them, but we shouldn't have been dating them. Should have. Well, I mean, it's the shoulds are tough because it's like, I don't regret it. My life, I, I learned a lot, all that kind of stuff. 
but um sure but if you're saying like would i mean it's just weird like would would we have been happier not living together i mean we've, we've been happiest if we men in blacked Mm-hmm. to never even know that person existed mm-hmm. so it's like yeah <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know what to say like the the, I'll, I'll high, the high level problem was i'll speak personally being in a relationship with that person at all and then living with them was also a problem mm-hmm. but it's not like it was i mean in hindsight like it wouldn't have been great to be neighbors but not live together like those yeah. relationships should have ended wait like years yeah. prior you're gonna have to learn this one on your own this is one that like i can t- here's here's my experience uh i have done I've, I've been fortunate enough to have experiences of like we're dating and then i move abroad and i'm we're dating and i live 15 minutes away and now we're dating and i live in the same room and i've done that with the same person i've done that with different people and for me by far the best thing is we're dating and we live a short drive away from one another uh living uh-oh Speaking of, she's now <laughs> double called in the last five minutes. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's not the person I was talking to that Charlie shouldn't date, by the way. I was talking about an ex. Current, uh, current girlfriend I like. She, sorry, what was I saying? Um, don't live with them. Don't live abroad. Live a short drive away. Don't live with them. Live abroad. Oh, yeah. So. Oh, don't worry, I just turn that over. <laughs> I just am going, God, is somebody dead? I'll call her. I'll call her. No, you know, there's just a good story. Yeah. It's just some gossip. Uh, so definitely best in my experience living nearby. Why? Uh, the ability to have your own private space is so underappreciated. Mm-hmm. And especially the ability to just like be bothered with one another and not talk about it, not fight about it, not overcome it, but just separate is such a phenomenal way to deal with just the general moodiness of life and just like instead of being like you know say one of us i'm in a crabby mood and she's in a slightly crappy mood and that can just get that can become a thing that it's not do you feel this way about your current roommate or do you think it's specific to dating oh if we had if we had to live together no your current roommate my brother yeah that you guys would have a better no, relationship. No, it's specific to dating. Had... It's specific to dating. It's specific to the codependent relationship that that occurs with dating. So you don't think you'd have a better relationship if he lived in the apartment across the hall? No, no. He's we're way more independent uh, than than any dating relationship I've ever seen. Now, perhaps there are people, but all of my friends. No, no. I was just curious because I know you guys sometimes yeah have friction. We always have friction, but but and we'd have, but it's okay. Like. I think this is another thing. The friction that I have with my brother is people scream and fight and that's just going to happen. <laughs> so, uh, it's cause not, you're siblings. You're saying, yes, yes. So I've been, I haven't gotten anywhere with this. I have preferred living nearby one another. Mm-hmm. The ability to separate has been huge. The ability to see each other on short notice is really nice as well, which wasn't the case when I lived in Brazil and somebody lived in Las Vegas. Um, I also, have always lived with at least one friend or brother, which I have found to be, a, to me and maybe my commitment issues or whatever, a really important grounding thing because in my experience, uh, the person that I'm dating has an agenda, as do all people. The agenda of the person I'm dating is to get me to do what they want. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right? That's, that's, and that's not horrible, but what they want is like, 
more commitment, to get married maybe, to take them more places, to go to Disneyland, to go to Halloween Horror Night, to like do these things and to have a friend who also wants me to do what they want to do but has uh, just I feel less obligated to my sure. friends because of the, the socio-cultural thing that I grew up in. It's very helpful. You'll also be less upset if you don't do it. Yes, and, and will not will not penalize me in the same way and knows that they can't penalize me in the same way. Like has to use uh, different tactics in order to get me to do things. Has been It's been such a useful grounding thing for me. So oftentimes she, she hates it. Uh, you guys are gonna be like, this is a horrible boyfriend. When she is yelling at me and she knows it, I'll be like, all right, I'm putting you on speaker with my lawyer. And uh, Henry hates it too. <laughs> I'll be like, tell him what you just said to me. I want him to say that if you're being reasonable. And she gets upset and, uh, but won't say it because she knows that she was leaning into me in a way that she could only lean into me without that third party hearing it. Mm. Does that make any sense? Sure. And again, all of this is something that we laugh about after the scenario. It's not like a, a hostage situation where she's like, oh my God, this private conversation we're having is now exposed. Um, but yeah, so I've preferred personally, all that said, to live nearby, to have a roommate. I have not lived alone and I could imagine that that might change my mind. I don't know. What do you think? Well, you, I mean, also I think most people have a more romantic view of what couplehood is not, yeah. and also friends who are coupling up. Does that make sense? So I imagine this person might yes, have all their friends be in the same place, moving apart, living with significant others. I can just, I remember living in New York and six of us lived in a two story apartment that was amazing. Mm -hmm. And then at some point people started to, couple up and one person would live with a girlfriend yeah. and then another person would live with a girlfriend and yeah, there's yeah, another yeah. guy. And then also there's this weird sense that they were doing really well financially. So they should get their own place. And then, so now they're living alone, but near each other. And I think then I remember the last guy who was single was just like, this kind of sucks. And if we were all single, it'd be awesome. Mm -hmm. But now I'm just by myself. Yeah. And so that person's desire for a girlfriend went up significantly once he lost the support network of his friends. Yeah. Which is something this person might I be seeing agree. happening or experiencing that. Was this a sorry, was, was this a YouTube comment or a Patreon comment? YouTube. Okay. Well, <laughs> I feel bad because this is you raise a really good point. My answer is so bad here because I'm such a particular person who has gone such a weird path of making my friends and my brother the primary system into my thirties. Mm -hmm. That's and, and most friends, weird. Most that friends, doesn't happen. You can't count on for that. Yes. Like they will go live with their own girlfriend mm -hmm. and you end up being alone in your nice apartment. Yeah. My friends and I, and we've betrayed each other in the past. But oh, we've, yeah. we've, we've have like a, a semi pact, <laughs> but it's, it's loose. I have a girlfriend right now, dude. I'm, I'm a betrayer at yeah. the moment. So is Benji. Yeah. But people like, throw their hands in and then take it out. Just kidding. Wait, you're going to take it out. Like I'm in. Uh, so my friends and I are all kind of like, Hey, maybe we'll just be roommates. <laughs> just kidding. I have a girlfriend. No, <laughs> like there's a lot of that. But I could be back one day, but I could be back and or I meant never it again. That was just a joke. <laughs> yeah. No, I think of my, my friend in New York, who I remember he, he had had a girlfriend, uh, when we were all living together and then became single when everyone else was single, mm -hmm. he kind of was like, like a little bit behind, you know what I mean? Everyone was single. He had a girlfriend, then he got single. And people got girlfriends, and then he was the last man standing. Yeah. I was like, dude, if I could go back to just everyone being single, it, w it was awesome. But mm -hmm. now, 
it just sucks because I'm the yeah. only person and there's no one to go out with or to hang out with. Yeah. So in sum, don't listen to me. I am a totally weird individual in this regard. And unless so many other priors in your life match mine, my advice is useless. Yeah. I'll also you. give you advice that'll be impossible to follow, yeah. which is... Get four friends let, that want to live with you instead. No, not even. <laughs> don't, don't let someone pressure you into doing it. Yeah. Live with them when you choose to. Yeah. You can't possibly follow this because yeah. you are, when you are getting pressured to do it, you'll fold to the pressure because yeah. the alternative is that there may be a breakup or well, and the you'll pressure have someone go, this cry is, at you. This is the thing or, with pressure. The pressure doesn't go away. It just builds. Right. You know what so I mean? Like, it's yeah, not, you're not, I, can, I can say that, but I know that that's yeah. impossible for you to execute on. So I don't even want to put that pressure on you from our end of like, oh, that's what you're supposed to do. This it's is like, the yeah, worst you have- answer I've ever given to depression, <laughs> and I feel it. I feel it right now. No, it's true. You're gonna. Is the truth. Yeah, I'll try to say something useful in my final thought. Uh, it's great to live apart. It's great to have your own space. If you do move together and you're financially able, one thing that I've heard people do is eventually get two separate bedrooms. Um, and the couple that I know that is one of the ones that is like most stable, 11 years does that and says it's a godsend to one, have their own space to not have to deal with sleeping issues. A lot of the things that are very exciting at the beginning of the relationship, like, Oh my God, you're in, you're here when I wake up and you're Mm -hmm. like become, uh, difficult later on. And so the, just that ability to like get away from one another without having to make a big deal out of it is so nice. Well, I have one thing and I don't know if you have any thoughts on it, but I feel like the best thing you could do if you're going to live with a significant other is figure out how to make it so that the frame is that you're going to opt in to doing things together instead of the assumption being that you're going to do things together. And then you have to opt out to do things alone or with your friends. Mm -hmm. Cause that was one thing that I struggled with. Like in Brazil, I lived with my girlfriend very close to you guys and it was a fight if I wanted to go hang out with you guys for four hours or whatever because she would be by herself. Mm-hmm. And I wish that I had been able to create a dynamic where it was just not assumed that my time was going to be spent with her and then I was choosing yeah, yeah. to spend time away with her. I wish that the frame had been, who knows what Ben's time's going to be and then there's a choice to spend time together mm-hmm. but there's never any sadness or anger or resentment if we're spending time apart mm-hmm. well in that case the answer was yeah don't don't take your significant other to a country where they don't know anybody or and, then, the and then expect <laughs> them to have a full life yeah. outside of you yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no the mistake was i mean honestly the mistake was uh having her be there living there yeah yeah um no should you the answer should have been hey you're going to be completely reliant on me in this foreign country. Understandably. Yeah. Uh, that's not going to work. Yep. So you can come visit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So that was a bad, bad answer. Good luck. <laughs> I feel bad even posting this. Do you have any philosophical? No, just a bunch of mistakes. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I don't even. Let's move on to it's patrons. Our, our lives are just so different from like, most Sometimes people, we can so. give good advice. This is just not one of them. So in any event, we're going to hop over to Patreon. Hopefully the advice there will be better than this. Was that been. the last question? Yep. Nice. Do Perfect. we even publish that? <laughs> I don't even know, dude. I think it's helpful. Okay. <laughs> just yeah, just Garbage. don't. We didn't tell you what to do, but just don't do that. Yeah. Just you don't know, be like yeah. me. <laughs> but also, you. I mean, you're probably... You're going to. Going to. This is just one of those things. This is one of those mistakes that has to be felt and made. Um, so good luck. Don't get married, that's a big one. Don't like it's moving out is sticky. That marriage one is 
it's not never get married. It's don't get pressured into getting married. That is that is a very, very yeah. bad thing to have happen. All right, Patreon. See the rest of you guys there. If you want to join, we go on for much longer and give much more useful answers than that typically. So hope to see you guys there. Any amount gets you in, and we're going to be doing a ton of questions. So see you over there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.